Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. So, as we were going to start on this podcast, we, I s- made a joke about that I should interview Deputy City Manager Christopher Parker about the Capital Improvements Program since he was a leader of it for so long. So that joke uh, ended up turning that way. So today we're going to discuss the Capital Improvements Program because we've been hearing so much about people asking about development and the benefit of growth and how the private sector has been reinvesting in the community. And that is likely due to the community investing upon itself. So I am Donna Benton, the Director of Planning and Community Development, and I am going to be interviewing the Deputy City Manager today, Christopher Parker, about the Capital Improvements Program. So, Chris, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to this podcast. The I best like, podcast ever, I can tell. I like spinning things around last minute on you. So <laughs> That is true. <laughs> that is true. Can you let the listeners know what the Capital Improvements Program is? So, the Capital Improvements Program is the city's outline of how it wants to maintain its capital infrastructure. And it is a linkage between the financial policies and our infrastructure needs. Put a little bit more succinctly, it is our laundry list of how we're going to maintain our capital investments that we've already made. Great. And what what does it need to be in it? So I think the easiest thing for people to think about is our roads or our utilities or our buildings. Those are like the big pieces of capital investment. But it also can be books, it can be cars, it can be computer software, it can be computer hardware. All of those things are in that the, that program. Really, it's anything that we're going to spend twenty five grand on that has five years or more of useful life. So that's a pretty broad category. It used to be ten thousand, and we upped it to twenty five probably ten years ago, as things changed. And at some point, we may, might need to up it even more. But I think that twenty five thousand threshold is a good barometer for us because there are a lot of things that we don't think cost that much but really do so like the library collections is a good example you know we spend money on library books they need to be in the cip this year new is uh, vehicle uh, replacement for administrative cars we've been spending the money on them for years but now we're going to put it in the cip to acknowledge that so the cip is forecasted out six years why do you think that's the magical number that's a good question. I think that six years is a realistic time frame for that people can grasp. Ten years, which I know, which you and I know, is what we try to think of as ten years. But ten years is pretty far. If if you think about it, do I know what I'm going to be doing when I'm fifty eight? Had to think how old I am. Uh, probably not, but I might be able to tell you what I'm going to do at fifty three. And so, I think five or six years out is a reasonable time frame, a reasonable horizon window that you can think past five years and come up with what things were like and think ahead five years. Mm-hmm. Great. And how does the capital improvements program come to be about? How does What's the process to actually create it each year? So for us here in Dover, we have a pretty good timeline where about right after the municipal operating budget is completed, you as the planning director send a request form out to the various departments and say, here are your old 
requests. Here's what, what was approved last year. Here's what was in the plan but not approved. Here's a request form. Send me your request. They get them back to you. You then compile them and then run it by myself and the finance director. And we take a look at it from a systematic standpoint of what is our financial wherewithal to afford projects? What is the connection to the master plan? And in general, operationally, why do we need to do these projects? And then once you've compiled a draft, you meet with the city manager and it's ultimately Mike's plan. So Mike takes a look at it and and thinks at it from a different level, both from a political level, but also from a umbrella organizational level, and then makes a final decision on what is actually going to be in that, that program. That work really should take the summer, maybe a little bit longer. And then you end up in the fall with a joint presentation of the city council and the planning board. And then each of them have a role in the approvals. Great. So there's different financing methods. Can you walk the listener through what those are and kind of why a certain project might be financed in a certain way? So there are three basic ones. And there's multiple subcategories, but there's three basic ones. The first is in the operating budget that is paid for by the uh, property taxes, or if it's part of the water sewer, then it's the enterprise funds. So while it's part of the operating budget, it's part of the collected revenue for being connected to the water or sewer service. There is capital reserve, which is essentially the savings account, and that could be money we put into savings every year, or that could be special revenue that is put there through impact fees or other associated means. And then finally, there is debt servicing, and that is using our credit card to purchase something. Again, there's some other minor opportunities, grant financing, et cetera, things that we might use in conjunction, but those three are the main ones. Where something gets decided as to which pot it goes into is set by our financial policies. We don't debt finance anything under 250000 and I think it also has to have a, a 10-year useful life to be debt service. So most things are going to fall under operating budget or capital reserve if it's below that 250, and it comes down to that longevity, how long it, it's going to have a useful life for and what the major impact would be. So if you're looking at the Capital Improvements Program, which is a large book or a large document online, um, certainly, there's a lot of important pages, but they're kind of summarized by the All Projects page, and that has a certain organization. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So that page is designed, as you say, to, to capture every project that's proposed within that six-year window, and it's broken down into a variety of categories. There's general government, police, fire, public works, culture and recreation, library, education, special revenue, uh, tax increment finance, water, and sewer. Wow. And those different sections all correspond to projects. Some projects might overlap, and if they are listed that way, they have a little asterisk, which implies that they are in multiple categories. A good example of that is the Complete Streets project for the Lower Central Avenue, which is between Silver Street and Stark Avenue, which has obviously a street component, a water component, a sewer component, And if we ever were to break it out with stormwater, it would have a stormwater component as well. Projects are listed in a certain order. The the top of each section are recurring projects. So the transfers to capital reserve are are a good example of that. Or in the public works, we always want to do street maintenance, which is uh, not reconstruction, but overlays and crack sealing and things of that nature. So those reoccurring projects occur first. 
And then after that, we go year by year, and within each year, they are then listed alphabetically. So the idea is that when a new project is proposed, it should start in year six and matriculate up. In addition to those signifiers, if something is italicized, it means the cost has changed. If something is underlined, it means that the year it's going to be proposed has changed, so the schedule has changed. And if it's bold, it's a new project. So obviously we can't fund all of the requests that we get in. So how do you kind of either inform the department heads of that, or how would you inform residents who have been excited for their project that maybe was cut out of the capital improvements program? So that's both a great question and the worst question. Mm -hmm. The capital improvements program is a list of needs, not wants. And sometimes wants and needs are the same thing. There are certain projects, that Central Avenue project I mentioned earlier, that is something we need to do. The Central Avenue stretch hasn't been touched in a long time other than some Band-Aids, and we want to improve it. But at the same time, it's a a want because we want to look at things like street, uh, street trees and traffic calming and things of those natures so that it straddles the two. But there are a lot of projects out there that people say, wouldn't it be great? And a, a great example of that, one that I've, I've loved for a number of years that, that just we struggle with, is the Downtown Pedestrian Vehicular Access Project. Again, the worst project I've ever named. Um, and I'm hoping that the new project manager for that comes up with a better name. But that's a great project. Looking at one-way, two-way flow downtown, looking at pedestrian improvements, is important, but it's also a $12 million at least project for one year. And our policies have been that we want to maintain a certain level of debt and not exceed it. And so we look every year, one of the roles that you and the finance director always can confer with first is what is our debt load year to year and where are we on debt service? And certainly that's going to come into play on some of those projects. Can we afford it? Is it a project we can afford to do? And if not now, could we another year? And that aspect of it, I think, really dials into the connection between this list of needs and what we can actually fiscally afford. I think over the past 20 years, the capital improvements program, the, the greatest change we would see or be able to point to is that when I started with the city, we were a lot more reliant on debt and a lot more reliant on use our credit card and, and get it done. And now it's much more, how can we build that into the operating budget? How can we, we be more fiscally responsible? And that means, just as it means at your house, that maybe you don't do things when you would love to do them, but when you can do them, that's the conversation we need to have with each other at a department head level to say, I get it. I totally hear that you would like to rebuild the parking lot at Shaw's Lane. That's not something we can afford today. One project in, in year one this year is improvements of the transportation center. Those needs, unfortunately, trump some other projects because when you look at the stability of that infrastructure, if we don't fix them now, they're going to get even worse and the deterioration will cause a lot more costs in the future. It's uh, akin to the road replacement money. We want to do crack sealing. We want to do overlays now because we don't want to do a full repair and reconstruction tomorrow. Right. Are there any changes um, that you want to go over or any other new projects you want to mention? I think a lot of the new projects are either looking long term. So uh, one of the new projects in culture and recreation is creating a way to fund 
savings for the arena. We know the arena is going to need some improvements. Uh, there's one in year five that's listed for the HVAC system. We want to start saving now to be able to get to the point where, where we can afford to do that. Again, saving as opposed to needing the debt service thing. Uh, the other thing that I would point to is we're doing a lot better job in my mind of thinking ahead about facility improvements and not being caught off guard that a 20-year-old facility needs to be improved or needs some uh, HVAC replacement or mechanical replacement. Uh, one that jumps out to mind is the uh, Mast Road Public Works facility. That building is almost 23 years old. We need to recognize that the useful life of appliances, whether they be for your home or for a non-residential structure like that, it's about 20 to 25 years, just as roofs need to be replaced. A project that I'm looking forward to and seeing how we can invest in infrastructure, maintaining our historical integrity, but also modernizing is the library. There's 6.7 million proposed over three or four years to help modernize the library, which was last really renovated other than some roof and boiler work that's been done over the past couple of years. Other than that work, the library really hasn't seen a lot of investments since the mid-80s when the elevator was put in and the children's room area was expanded. 40 years is probably the right amount of time for us to take a look at some of these buildings, but that's one where I know we're going to do some investment and it's going to have more than 40 years worth of value long term. How do grant funds, obviously there's federal funding available, how do those play with the capital improvements program? We are always looking for grant funding whenever we can offset municipal funding, and that's how we, we use them. Um, we know that 90% of the time you're not going to get 100% grant funding. The uh, Complete Street Project is a great example of that. We're getting an 80-20 match on what the federal government thinks the project should cost, which is not what we estimated it's going to cost. The federal government wasn't so interested in the waterline replacement and sewer connections, but they like the street work. They see it as a gateway project in the community. Uh, so we're receiving $4.8 million in grant funding for that out of about a $7.9 million project. On the public works side, there's another $2 million on the, the water side. Pretty big project. One of the things that uh, we need to continually remind ourselves of is we are not a young community. In the grand scheme of the world, we are a young community, but in the grand scheme of, of New Hampshire and uh, the United States, we're the seventh oldest community. And some of our infrastructure maybe isn't 400 years old, but is at least 200 years old. And we are at a point where we dig up water lines that are still logs. We need to be looking at replacing them and modernizing them. And that sort of investment is great to get grant funding for, where we can offset and maybe make projects a little bit more comprehensive than they otherwise would have been. And what's the tie-in with the master plan and the CIP? There should be a lockstep tie-in. And, and one of the things that I know you've really honed in on is looking at, is this in the master plan? If not, why not? And how can we really provide that linkage so that when someone picks up the book that you put together, they can see, oh, if you turn to page 39 of the facilities and infrastructure chapter, you'll see the background and why this chapter, why this is needed. It's one of the criteria that we use to determine whether a project is a want or a need. Right. So what's the next steps in terms of timeline and how the public can get engaged? So the public can get engaged in a variety of ways. One is I'm sure that you and your staff are always happy to chat with people about this project. Absolutely. So whether they swing on by, give you a holler, or send you an email, they can do that. Uh, the workshop that the planning board and the city council hold together is 
provided on replay on the online Dovernet connection. There is a planning board review on its own and then public hearing on its own when they recommend to the city council what their position is on these projects and the, and the proposal as a whole. And the city council holds its own meetings uh, in line with what the, the planning board is doing, sort of parallel but also connected, including workshops and public hearing. And certainly those availabilities, people can show up at the at, uh, speak at the podium, send an email, send a voicemail. And then finally, there's a whole webpage devoted to these projects, where they're located in the community. So people can go and look at that material, plus come in and see the book that you've prepared, whether it's at the library, the clerk's office, or your office. Finance probably has a copy of the book <laughs> since they actually print it. Uh, so it's available there. I, I think the, the more engagement we can get, the more people that come out and say, yes, this is a priority. We need to be doing the following things. One thing that's new this year that I think might spur more communication is last year we were asked by the council what got cut out. And so this year built into the book is going to be a list of here's projects that previously had been in the six-year plan that are not in the plan anymore and a brief description of why. And then following that will be a list of what projects were requested that we did not elect to fund. Uh, so I had mentioned a couple minutes ago the... Uh, Shaw's Lane parking lot. That's a project that the school department and the rec department have said has some value. It's a million dollars to redo that parking lot. In the grand scheme of things, not that that's not worth doing, but compared to other priorities, it was not able to meet the six-year plan for now. Not to say it might not appear in the future. That's one where we want to say to people, yeah, we know this is out there. We heard feedback that this is important. And so another way I think we're going to get feedback is by people seeing there are tough cuts that are made. And maybe that sets us up for future conversations about, do we need to reprioritize? Do we need to change the policy of what gets included? Great. Was there anything else that you were going to ask me that we should cover? I think I was going to ask you more along the lines of how do we continue to evolve the book and the presentation materials? And how can we make it more user-friendly, both from a department head standpoint, but a board committee standpoint, and just the general Joe off the street or Jane off the street to uh, to make the book usable. I think the availability of the book is important, that it's available in print and online. And I think each individual project page that has either maps or photos to explain what the project is, it has a description, it has the resilience piece, it has the breakdown of the costs, I think is helpful. I think we can go further, obviously, with items like this podcast or social media posts so that the average person can understand rather than kind of open a book and see a bunch of tables and might uh, feel overwhelmed by the amount of numbers that they might see. So I think just making sure that people are aware that we're open to conversing about it and where to find more information is helpful. I'm curious, is it relatable to say, as a homeowner, you go through the same sort of conversations about your own house. I need to redo the roof. When am I going to redo it? I need to paint my walls. Is that a relatable way to frame the capital improvements program? I think so, because typically you want to plan for things, but obviously emergencies happen as well. So that's why it is forecasted out six years, but we look at it every year um, because things do change. And certainly with the inflation that we've seen over the last couple of years, that has made some of the priorities change where we want to make sure we're finishing projects that we've started, even though they might have were supposed to be matriculated out at this point. So I think knowing that it's a living document and that it's reviewed every year um, is helpful in that regard. Yeah, your point about inflation is is a really good one to point out because 
for a long time, and I mean long in the sense of before you started working here 10 years ago, we've used 4% as the inflationary number project requests are supposed to reflect. Clearly, 4% is not the right number anymore. Right. And that that's something that whether it's debt service covers less because interest rates are higher or whether it's because the cost of things just is so much more. You know, I look at the uh, the ambulances. The year one ambulance is 450000 It wasn't that long ago, probably even two years ago, it was two thirty five. Right. was the cost of an ambulance. It's it's astronomical. I think the, the aerial platform, what we think of as the large ladder truck, I remember when that was in here for a million five, and I remember the city manager saying, I don't know how we're going to afford that. That's a lot of money. It's now $2.8 million. It is, it's just crazy to see the cost impacts that we have, not even going out to bid on some of these things. Um, the fire chief, I know if he were on this this conversation, he would say that 450000 is a price we're going to lock in now for an ambulance we won't get for two years because supply chain says you pay now and then you get it when we get it to you. Right. Uh, so all of those sort of factors are ones that we need to keep in mind too. Absolutely. Well, thank you for allowing me to turn things around today and for all this information about the Capital Improvements Program. You're very welcome. It is uh, my pleasure to be on the other end of the microphone. Great. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. Although we celebrated Thanksgiving last week, in 1905 this week, Dover was gearing up for the holiday. It's always fascinating to look back at how this holiday was celebrated over a century ago in Dover. Thanksgiving in 1905 was as much about the feast as it is today. Advertisements in the local newspaper from that time reveal a variety of food items for sale for the holiday meal. One could purchase homemade sausage, tomato sausage, home-cooked corned beef, and an assortment of nuts, raisins, figs, grapes, and confectionery, all touted as fresh goods. Additionally, a range of dried fruits like prunes and apricots were available essential for the traditional fruitcakes and puddings of the time. A standout offer from the Masonic Temple Grocery was 20 pounds of granulated sugar for $1. At the same store, S.S. Pierce's Cloverleaf Honey, both in bottles and by the comb, catered to those looking for natural sweeteners. Cartland Grocery and Provisions announced a one-day sale before Thanksgiving, offering large oysters by the quart for 35 cents. Fashion played an important role in Thanksgiving celebrations, too. Advertisements from Haskell Adams & Company showcased shoes for women, highlighting their quality and craftsmanship. The American Fur & Cloak Company on Waldron Street advertised their large stock of the newest styles in ladies' and children's coats and skirts, suggesting a trend towards elegant dressing for the holiday season. Byron F. Hayes offered fur coats from $25 to $62 each. The Dover Clothing Company, which boasted to be the largest clothing store in Dover, indicated a wide range of clothing options available, catering to the need to dress well for Thanksgiving gatherings. Preparing the home for Thanksgiving was also a key aspect. Advertisements from the Emoral Furniture Company for dining tables, sideboards, and chairs from $5 to $65, as well as buffets and china closets, suggested that many families were keen to spruce up their dining areas. Entertainment and leisure were not overlooked. The J.E. Lothrop Piano Company in Franklin Square offered every piece of popular music in their store for five cents each, reflecting the era's love for music and home entertainment. 
This offer likely catered to the tradition of gathering around the piano for singing and music, a popular pastime during Thanksgiving. The advertisements in Foster's Daily Democrat from 1905 provide a colorful glimpse into the Thanksgiving celebrations in Dover. They paint a picture of a community embracing the festive spirit with a focus on food, fashion, home decoration, and entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Download's email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.